Welcome to the Founder and Funder Experience, brought to you by Format One. This podcast serves to bring to light the different journeys select founders and funders took to get to where they are today. We hope their lives and their learnings continue to inspire both present and future innovators. Hello, everybody. This is Arjun Dave Arora, the founder and managing partner of Format One. We support founders and funders and help accelerate their efforts via people, capital, and strategy. And now off to John. Hello, John Lowe here, uh, co-founder at Format One, along with Arjun Dave Aurora. Uh, I am the lead on executive coaching and communications facilitation. Um, but enough about me. Today's guest, we have a wonderful individual. His name is Jack O'Halloran. I hope I pronounced it right. And um, I'm going to let him introduce himself, tell, tell us a bit about himself and what he's up to, and then we'll dive right in into who Jack is, where he comes from, what's he been up to, what will he be up to? Awesome. Hey, hey guys, really appreciate you having me today. Uh, have been looking forward to this conversation and uh, I am excited to be here. So my name is Jack O'Halloran. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Scale Labs. We are the, I guess, team building the Scale Network, which is an open source, decentralized blockchain network. Uh, I can get into more of what Scale does later. I've been doing tech startups for a while in uh, in Silicon Valley. Happy to Happy to get into that as well. But um, yeah, really, really a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. So, so Jack, unless, unless you are one of those preordained Dalai Lamas type of kids, I, I'm assuming you didn't grow up with the Scale Labs vision in mind when <laughs> you were, you know, three years old. <laughs> um, can you tell us a bit about, you know, you know, what were your natural interests and tendencies growing up? And, you know, how did, how did you find your way into tech eventually, you know? Yeah, I, you know, it was it was not a direct path for me. I grew up in a small town in western Nebraska. Uh, I didn't know anything about technology. I, I fortunately, I think my mom was a little bit of an early adopter and was always buying the the latest Mac that was out. And you know, I was playing Oregon Trail and Carmen San Diego and the other games the kids of my generation played, where we got introduced to computers. Um, but you know, I never saw myself ever. Of, of having a career in technology and came from a family of people who are in medicine or law. And that was kind of, you know, if you, you know, similar to a lot of people, I think, and, you know, there's different categories and paths you could go down growing up in a place, not growing up in the Bay Area, for example, growing up in a small town in Western Nebraska. Uh, but, you know, I, I ended up going to school at the University of Nebraska, was pre-med and pre-law, trying to figure out which one I was going to do. And, you know, at a certain point, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to do business. This sounds cool. I took a marketing class and, and I loved it. And it was so interesting because the marketing class was not, it was not this, you know, binary one dimensional thing of like, you know, it was about people and humans and behavior and like perception and influence and also about products and like these, these hard components that are parts of these other, you know, medicine and law, but. It was to me a more interesting playing field. And I also liked the fact that I could just go start doing it after college and I wasn't going to have to go to school for a lot longer. I could just like go, you know, play ball and get in the game. Um, so that was, that was kind of my path into, into getting into business. And, you know, I was, I was also a football player at the University of Nebraska and I was a starter my junior year. I had aspirations my whole life of going to the NFL or being a pro baseball player or professional athlete of some sort. And I remember I, I had an injury and, and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to go to the NFL. I better. And, and I knew that even if I did, I wasn't going to be a career, you know, I wasn't going to retire off NFL money. And I, and it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have 
filled this this desire to go do something and build something and and get into the business world. And so for me, when I had this injury, I was like, you know what? This is my new North Star. I mean, I remember that day and I was like, I'm, you know, I have new goals. And and I had an uncle that lived in, uh, two uncles, that, you know, two of my dad's brothers both live in Silicon Valley and got introduced to a guy named Bill Campbell when I was a senior in college. And I had no clue what I was going to do. And he's like, I learned about this whole career in technology. And I said, hey, I'm going to try to be like that guy. And And that was kind of, you know, long story short, I ended up in living in Palo Alto and that was in 2005 and went from not knowing anything about tech to uh, happy to kind of get into the journey from there on forward. But that was those those are my my steps and kind of how I somehow went from like, you know, riding horses and, you know, shooting pheasants and uh, like scooping snow in western Nebraska to, you know, coming into Silicon Valley. <laughs> wow. 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 There's a common thread there. You're using your hands and feet somehow. <laughs> the, and, and I say that facetiously, but I, I don't joke. It's, it seems like um, you grew up with a life where you, you really learned and grew by doing versus theorizing. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think one common thread, and you know, this is something I I picked up on, but also I as I grew, I, I learned a lot more about this. But it was it was just like learning the art of learning. <laughs> And sports taught me that and school taught me that. It was like, okay, there's, I have a goal. Let me sit down and figure out what things I can do and do well. And what are the things that if I do the best, I will have the best result instead of doing everything with equal, equal effort. Like, how can I focus my learning to get really good at this and invest in failure? And then like, Hey, I might strike out the next four or five times, but I know I'm using the right technique. And then, you know, then eventually you start having success and then you get exponential success. And, you know, the same thing school true if you're studying for a test, right? You could read everything or you could say, hey, look, this is what I know that I need to learn in order to score well <laughs> um, and sports. And then the same thing I think holds true with business. And um, yeah, and it doesn't matter where you're from. And, you know, if you have ambition and I think like, you know, a desire and like a, a way and knowledge of how to learn, I think, you know, that's, that's a key to a lot of people's success. Wow, that's so well said. And actually, perhaps uh, that's something that it's our observation is it's not such a common skill either, because the way you just described it was you you reverse engineered like an end in mind and and how to get there. Whereas we see a lot of um, behavior where like it's just learning stuff for learning sakes, but without an without a clear out, uh, outcome or where is this taking me? And that has its own rewards, obviously. But it was interesting that you mentioned, you know, how do I get there, right? <laughs> and then what I need to learn and what's going to get there, to, uh, get me there the fastest or with uh, maximum success. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I remember, I remember I was, it was, wasn't until I was, I don't know, maybe I was almost 30 years old that I read, I read the four hour work week. And then after that, I read the, uh, the art of learning and, and before that, I, and a few months before that, I actually, I did a full distance Ironman. I never, I didn't own a bike. I never swam. I never ran a marathon. And I was like, what? And I was in Japan and I had one of the, one of my uh, customers like basically talk me into doing this at like two in the morning at a bar. And he's like, you've got five months to train from today. I was like, I kind of think I can run three miles. But so I was like, okay, like, let me look back at my experiences. What do I need to do if I like if I have good technique? If I you know I can exert probably one fifth the effort 
that most people would if their technique is not efficient. And like, I actually did it. I finished the race. It wasn't fast, but I did it. But I was like, wow, like I put these, you know, I, I use what I learned. And then I read the four hour work week. And then I read Art of Learning. I was like, you know, I realized that that was a playbook. I could have been even better at like, you know, this model because people are studying this and they're designing, you know, mechanisms for, for learning and being efficient and investing in failure. So, um, yeah, but you're right. I think a lot of people don't do it, but everybody has the aptitude to, right? Totally. Um, wow. Anything you want to add to that, Arjun? I just, uh, I, I just sidetracked the conversation, but no, I, I, I have a mindset of 2005 in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, we'd love to pick it up from there. And, and obviously you were introduced to, to Bill Campbell. You ended up in Palo Alto and, you know, got and began your journey in the, the tech ecosystem, the, you know, kind of Silicon Valley startup world. And so we'd love to hear kind of how things progressed once you landed there and, and, you know, who, uh, you know, who helped you? How did you build from there? And, and, um, yeah, how did you end up to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, waking up one day in Palo Alto after being in Nebraska and other places in the world is uh, so. We're asking a question post post reorientation geographically. <laughs> you know what? And so, what I'll I'll give you one. I'll, I'll move the story back one step because I came to I flew out to Santa Clara. I ended up getting this job, but they said, "Hey, we just opened this office in North Carolina. Will you move there?" And I'd never been to North Carolina. Didn't know a single person in the state and. Like, but if you do really well, we'll move you out to California in three to six months. So I was like, okay, sounds, sounds like a good deal. And so I, anyways, I end up doing an inside sales lead generation or SDR, BDR type role, um, selling software for a company called Good Technology. And I was really, I wasn't selling. I was just opening up leads, right? Qualifying. And, and I went from like, you know, being this high profile football player who everyone knew in Nebraska. And then the next thing I'm like in a cubicle, I'm just making 75 calls a day, getting people hanging up on me. I was the lowest person, the totem pole in the company. <laughs> and, and I, and you know, I was just shy to even talk on the phone the first, and I was just getting hung up on and my, everyone's making fun of you. You know, if you have a bad call, I was just like, and I remember I called my mom. I was like, what am I like this? I'm horrible at this. And she's like, you know what? It's, you sounds like you just don't know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> go buy a book or something. And I remember I went and bought like selling 101 or selling by phone 101. I read this book. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like how you do this. And ended up uh, the, my first full month, I did double what anyone had done before on the job because I just was like, okay, I'm just going to like, you know, apply all these techniques I'm learning. And I heard other people like, they're not using any techniques. They must have not read these books. And it was an advantage and ended up got, you know, got moved out to, moved out to Palo Alto and and you know, it was just really fortunate too to have a lot of good mentors at good technology that really helped me both in sales and in other categories. And the founder of the company and the CEO and lots of the top salespeople just it was a really great place where people, I think, took time to educate younger people. So that was one of the most fortunate things that happened. And then, you know, good had a had a successful exit to Motorola. Stuck around there for a while. And then the founder of the company, a, a guy named Joel Jewett at Good, who had become a mentor of mine. And I started working for him doing business development and, and product management work and kind of engineering coordination, getting and learning the other part of the house. He said, you know, you should start a company. And I was like, yeah, that's what I was thinking of doing too. And ended up starting my first company in 2008 uh, with, uh, with three other people. And it was called Incentiline. It was a digital currency for resource allocation in an enterprise. So NASA was the first customer. Wow. We had these like NASA bucks. You could like buy wind tunnel time or supercomputer time. And there's this whole supply demand curve that 
that balanced pricing. And what it did is create these natural, uh, you know, resource allocations because people were like, well, I don't really need it. I'll wait two days later. I'll wait four days later. And it was, I think it was a phenomenal idea that met the buzzsaw of the 2008, uh, economic collapse. <laughs> and then here we were, we were like, okay, we've all quit our jobs. <laughs> um, <laughs> No one's buying this anymore. Uh, you know, all the implementations are stopped. We're like, well, let's go back to the drawing board. And we ended up, you know, taking that team and that the premise of that engine and built a company called Octana. And, and, uh, yet, you know, almost every pharmace- pharmaceutical rep or biotech rep in the world is guided through this analytic platform today. And almost anybody who's, you know, been given a prescription or gotten a medical, like a cancer oncology treatment. In some way, shape, or form, the healthcare professional was impacted and informed and interacted with this technology. So it was it was a cool kind of turn of events, and then to to grow and go through that phase, and that was kind of my next chapter, like going from like you know slugging it out and kind of growing up the the ladder at good to then you know being able to uh, yes yeah, start a company and like have new failures and new learning lessons and and uh, you know and and I've and I've loved it. It's been been really fun. Oh, amazing. Congratulations on uh, Atana uh, and the team <laughs> for taking that. Uh, so that was uh, that was quite transformational. I mean, that you're talking about something that impacts like a broader ecosystem there. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. And, you know, and I'll tell you, I learned so many lessons and so did my my colleagues and co-founders. Like we we learned a lot through the process. And um, I think we would have been so much more efficient and effective earlier had we have gone through an incubator and accelerator program. And, you know, that's a good thing about those types of programs. You're getting really close mentoring and coaching. And we were just kind of, you know, reading blog posts, talking to people, figuring it out. And, you know, it's not the most efficient, effective way to learn, but we eventually got there. And we're also early. We were, you know, this is all AI machine learning technology and no one even called it that, right? It was just advanced analytics or predictive analytics. And we'd go sell this to people and they'd say, okay, so you're, you're here telling me that I should have my sales reps listen to a machine and a computer to tell them who to call and what to talk about. Like, get out of here. Okay. Like they're not going to like that. They, we, we go by gut. We know where to, who to sell to. We know our territories. I see a lead. I know what to do. And I'm like, yeah, maybe your best reps do, but what about 90% of the team? And even the best reps, why should they waste so much time digging through spreadsheets when they could? You know, this is like human computer interaction <laughs> for synergy. And it was, it was really interesting, um, seeing that progress. And also when I was at good, I had a chance to see mobile progress. And then I got to see this machine learning AI space progress. And now I'm working in blockchain. And I have to tell you, there's a pattern. I just see this pattern and I'm excited about blockchain because again, it's another disruptive technology. I think that's a huge future. And um, and I just see a lot of the same parallels, which was what what got me interested. Yeah, wow, super excited to dive into those patterns that you notice because you know as you were talking about you know pre labels of machine AI for you know this application and people saying what you sh- I should listen to a machine to tell me who I should call, <laughs> but nowadays we think of course right like you know there's yeah. just just so much and it's not just for sales you know it's for customer success and all these other things right so you're at the front of kind of an inevitability in the marketplace, so to speak, there. What are the patterns you see there that you've translated or kind of noticed in the blockchain space now? Because I think now we're going into territory that leads us a bit more to scale labs and 
the uh, the broader vision um, and super excited to, for you uh, to unpack that for us. Yeah. So, so I'll give you an example. When I was at, I'll start first in mobile, good technology was mobile computing. And the reality was there's one killer app. It was email. Okay. And then text and text messaging. Okay. On a smartphone, those are the two things you could do. If you tried to use any applications that and any memory requirements, high throughput requirements, bandwidth, battery life, um, it just didn't work. Like a message is okay because you can send it and then it doesn't, if it sends later, you don't really know. Like, you know, it just, it's very light. It's a packet. It just goes through. But if I, if like we want to play a simultaneous game, if we want to use a like high compute power business application, right? You just couldn't do it. And so almost every Fortune 500 company used good at that time. And it was, you know, if you had an application you wanted to get on mobile, that's where you would go. You'd go to good and Blackberry. But you know what? No, none of these, nothing ever worked. No one did anything because the device speeds were slow. The bandwidth was horrible, et cetera. And then, you know, fast forward a few years to 2009. And I think Apple very smartly was like, well, here's the speed. Like, we're going to wait. We're going to time this well when all the other infrastructure comes together. And they did. And the iPhone came out. And soon after, you know, uh, 3G arrived and, and, you know, compute and battery power, et cetera, all came together at the same time. And then, you know, and it really exploded. And you look at AI and machine learning, this was not a technology issue. Okay. Like Moore's law was like in a pretty good place. Algorithms were all like not a new thing. Like the algorithms that most people are using for these things are not that complicated. What the issue was, was about the human side of this and like technology, human technology acceptance. And this, so this was a little different, but it was, you know, people had to like get comfortable with this new, new social dynamic of inter- interacting with computers and getting guidance. And also, you know, when you use to AI, you also have to put, it's like bad, like dirt, like, uh, you know, dirty data in, dirty data out, garbage in, garbage out. And so there was just a lot of things that had to change. And, you know, so I saw, and, and then, you know, people start getting wins and then, you know, and again, it's like the low hanging fruit. And then you start getting into disruptive categories and you start getting into these really interesting growth categories. And, I see the same thing, both those dynamics happening at the same time in blockchain where the technology is coming together just as the mobile piece did with all these different combined parts. The human societal acceptance piece is coming together. Um, it's still kind of far out there, but you know, you would have told, tell somebody in 2005 that you're never going to take a taxi again and just anybody can just start their own business and drive their own car around and drive you around and you'll be comfortable and safe doing so, they'll tell you you're crazy, right? So <laughs> these things feel a long ways out and then they happen quick. And so I see those things happening with blockchain and, and I'm excited about it. And it's uh, similar patterns, both from technology readiness and societal acceptance. Wow. Wow. And so e- even with blockchain, what do you see uh, have been some great accelerants to societal adoption that has in, a, in fact helped, helped you and other innovators in the space really pursue building the pipelines of infrastructure with more support resource, whether that's capital, human uh, support and community support. We'd love you to talk through some of those things. You know, the interesting thing, I mean, a lot of journeys aren't smooth and that's the case for blockchain. <laughs> so, uh, and it's frictionful and it's friction because there's some things that move the ball forward and other things that move the ball backwards and they happen at the same time. And, and so one, like people have been able to make a lot of money and like 
and participate in these nascent products, which stimulates growth, which floods more venture capital down to good entrepreneurs and good teams that are starting businesses and finding product market fit. But conversely, there's been like graft and like not good KYC AML practices and like bad branding for like hackers using, using Bitcoin and as a means to like capture their, you know, their ransom or whatever. And, and, you say, and then, and then also there's been like just fraudulent efforts and like these fake hype things that try to capture that money and that growth. And so while the ball is getting pushed forward, it's also getting pushed back. And I think that's common, but I've never been in an industry that's been so dramatic with like the swings <laughs> or the motions back and forth. And so I think the industry is just good, no matter, but it seems like one of these things where you look at the value of mobile computing, you look at the value of AI and machine learning, you look at the value of ride sharing and the, the gig economy and the share economy. Uh, and then you now I think you look at the user owned economy or, uh, you know, profit sharing communities and, um, you know, community owned software products like co-ops that are your ride sharing company. And, you know, it just seems to me like an, inevit an inevitable thing where you can, through smart contracts and open source software and essentially blockchains, create new rails, rules, and governance for the way we use software systems. And it's like water flowing downhill. It's like gravity is inevitable. And it just, you know, who knows how fast it will get there. <laughs> you know, hopefully it hits a nice, nice, nice stream. And, uh, but right now there's just a lot of friction and, but we're close. We're really close still. I think in the next, you know, one to two years, we'll start seeing those breakout years. And, and, um, but that's why it hasn't happened yet is, is, you know, all of the technology issue combined with, with friction in the space. But, you know, for people that really are perceptive and either want to start a business in the space or invest in it, it doesn't take much effort to see the like real kernels of value. And, um, and that, and that's where the promise is. Thanks for sharing that. And, and so like, tell us a bit about, as you're talking about these broader trends and inevitabilities within the crypto space and its opportunities, where does scale labs fit present day and where does it want to fit in the future? Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to speak pretty high level here because I think getting in the nuances of yeah, please do, please infrastructure, do. like we can do that. You know, I, there's a lot of content if you want to hear me talk about that, but I'm going to speak you know, kind of macro architecturally. So blockchains are shared databases. And what it is, is it creates one database. Okay. And imagine if Uber, Google, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, Salesforce.com all use the same database and they had to share it. Imagine and like all of a sudden, you know, it's end of quarter and Salesforce is just, you know, and it costs more to send your email or, you know, something's trending on Twitter and it, you know, your email slowed down, right? And imagine the cost of running this where everybody's data has to be stored on everybody else's system. It's not efficient. And that's not the way the internet's built. The internet is like these, these little, you know, mini databases with weak links talking to each other. And so what scale builds is, is a large pool of these, of these nodes or computers that work together. And they can be randomly assigned into these subgroups, maintaining the security properties of blockchains, but then giving each application, like the email application, the rights application, the, you know, the, the uh, decentralized finance product, the games, like each, each application gets their own blockchain 
that's actually in a unified pooled security model. And so what it is, is we're replicating this infrastructure of the internet and then bringing the Ethereum ecosystem, which is the top developer uh, tooling and, and code and just developer ecosystem uh, hands down in blockchain. You can bring that into every single chain, your own blockchain, and then and then also work interoperably back and forth with the Ethereum name net, which is the big shared database that has a lot of value as well to have the big shared database, because that's where you get this one source of truth forever about who owns what. And um, and so what Scale does is Scale is actually built on, it uses Ethereum to run the Scale network, and it works back and forth with Ethereum to help developers have a future experience. And a lot of people say, oh, they think it's like how many transactions per second, um, the speed of transactions. And those are nice things, but it's actually stepping back a little bit. It's more about um, giving people the architecture to then create a Web 2-like experience across the entire Web 3 internet. And that's our goal. Not just you know solve this one acute issue that's you know present today, which people like to talk about, which is throughput and transaction time and transaction cost. Wow. Well, this is a lovely. And thanks for sharing that. Wow. And with scale, how did you come up with the name then as it, as it speaks you know to, speaks <laughs> to what you just discussed? So we, so, um, my, Stan Cladco, my co-founder and I, who has a very long track record in Silicon Valley too. And, um, we even crossed paths a few times where he did the cryptography certification when I was like, good. He ran a crypto lab for a while. Uh, he and I were just like going back and forth on what the name should be. And, we had all these different ideas. And I remember I was, I was running, I was, lived in the Presidio at the time in San Francisco and I was running, uh, trail running on the coast because I lived right out near the coast. And, and I was listening to a podcast. I was listening to Chris Dixon and on Adam Draper's podcast. So Adam Draper is now an investor in scale uh, with Boost VC, but they use the word scale about, I bet, 200 times in that podcast. And afterwards, I called Stan. I was like, hey, we should call we should call this scale Zen. And he's like, <laughs> stupid. Okay. developers like short words. We're going to call it scale. I was like, okay. <laughs> so that was a story. Um, and so, uh, and then, you know, and it makes sense for search to use a different letter to, if you type in SCALE blockchain, there'll be like 10,000 results. You'll never show up. But if you type in SKLE <laughs> and, and then we, you know, scale labs was a nice way to name, uh, you know, the, the corporation that supports the network, which is a scale network. So that's, that was the origination there. And our goal of the community is to scale blockchain so we can have hundreds of millions and, you know, maybe even billions of users using blockchains. Wow. That's absolutely amazing. And, you know, for, for the everyday person, right, who's not so clued with the building of uh, blockchain applications or building in this space, how does, how does my life look different? as scale achieves what it sets out to achieve. Yeah. You so, know, how do, what are the implications for uh, everyday living? Okay, let me, I'll try to give three examples. One, let's talk about a checking, a, a bank account, savings account. Right now, all of our savings accounts are run by banks and, and there's brick and mortar institutions and insurance, all these, you know, people and marketing and sales and, you know, and then these banks are taking your money and then they're doing all these other crazy things with it, right? Through the economy. And there's just a lot of middlemen. Okay. And what, what banking looks like in the Ethereum world that we're trying to help build in the, in the blockchain world is there's no bank. 
the blockchain, this shared asset run by all of these servers, is the ledger that secures everyone's money. And you and right now, like Bitcoin is very clear, like, yeah, I can, you know, it's a ledger, it just keeps our money and it does a great job at that. But in the Ethereum ecosystem, you can in- incorporate these smart contracts, which are really computing properties. And all of a sudden, I can have a checkings account. I can have a savings account. I can have like these really uh, in like highly complicated financial instruments for trading. And so it's like, and guess what? There's no, there's no brick and mortar. There's no middleman. We can cut the middleman out and then your returns are going to be dramatically higher than what you're getting with banks. So that's, that's one example. Okay. Um, another example would be, let's go to like the deep end of web three. Let's say Facebook, Google, Uber. Um, and if Uber is maybe not a good web, you know, crossover web three, but all three are incredibly strong network, uh, network effect companies that get stronger. And then now we have these three proper, these three central players that are taking more value than they give back to the community. And I mean, if Google's making a hundred billion a year off search and like taking our data and selling our data and buying our data and kind of manipulate, like you say something and next thing you know, you're getting tar- retargeted on Instagram and, you know, all these. And Arjun, you know this world well, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and hey, it was, it was really good and valuable to get us this state. But imagine if we as the users owned the product and the code was open source so we could all see it and we could, we could vote on how those ad dollars are shared back through the community and we could opt in or opt out to how our data was leveraged and monetized. And if we want to opt into how to monetization, we actually get to recoup the benefits that hundred billion probably goes down because the ad dollars will be lower. Maybe it goes up. I don't know. But if so, if it goes to 50 billion, then you share 50 billion, you know, 30 billion across all the people who just use a product and you have another 20 billion you can give to all the people that run the service. Okay. And the same thing's true. If we, we take Uber and we remove Uber and we use open source code and smart contracts and I go, you know, get a, catch a ride that 30% Uber takes gets split between the driver and the rider and the people that run the servers and write the code. Um, Brain Trust is an example I think you guys have talked to where instead of having these middleman recruiting companies, they let the companies work directly with the talent and they do it for no cut and they just make sure you use B Trust as the fee component. 10% of whatever the transaction is, you have to pay a fee in B Trust, okay? And that goes back to the community. And, and so when you have a cryptocurrency and a blockchain and, a, and an open source product, you can do amazing things as far as community growth, governance, profit sharing, um, et cetera. Wow. So, wow, that, that helps. Thanks for, thanks for taking us through that journey, Jack. I mean, because now I've started to think like, wow, so brain trust is literally just the beginning and we can expect many more versions of brain trust in different, with different core value drivers. Um, floating around the ecosystem. But and Lynn, I'll, I'm, I want to add one last thing here, just to anybody, if this is your one of your first times hearing about, about Web3 business models or user-owned economy. And what I'll say is the, the, one of the problems blockchain has is that there are uses for it everywhere. It's like the internet. And that's why a lot of people are like, hey, it's Web3 or the open internet. And so it, what it means, it ends up being a really big product marketing issue and awareness issue because... To some people, blockchains are these enterprise things that help big companies move money around the world. To other people, it's supply chain software. Other people, it's like 
the next rails of the gaming world. You know, any gaming will be using blockchain and, you know, non-fungible assets that can be sold across these tokens and like, you know, smart contract, provable, provable gaming. Other people are like, no, it's all about finance. It's about money. It's about, you know, you know, being bankless. It's about removing middlemen or other people are like, Hey, this is web three. Like, let's go into these middleman heavy network, network effect businesses and create community owned properties with open source code and smart contracts. And, and so it's a lot of things to a lot of people, which is also speaks to, I think, the potential growth. But also one of the reasons why we're having challenges because nobody knows how to describe it. And even the people that work in the space have trouble agreeing on what it is. <laughs> wow, that's so well said. And you know, you know, the idea it's almost like these are the implications of operating in a decentralized fashion, where if you look historically, we don't have an architectural precedent to say what it is like. You know, you can't translate. A metaphor to like, you know, um, whatever something Socrates did or something back in the day. <laughs> the, but it, it would love to, for you to speak more about how you came to understand or get into this mindset of what decentralized actually means and its implications, and how you see other people start to familiarize themselves with what that actually means. Because I think we're still in in a arguably a discovery phase, are, are we not? You, we are, we are. And I think, I think there's also a spectrum of decentralization too. And, and how much user owned something is. And, and also it's, it's also a path and a journey. And I think what most the, a lot of the smart people in the space that I've been talking to, uh, and this is also my opinion is you don't want to start on day one with complete, you know, community ownership. You just won't get anywhere. You need to be more centralized. And over time, you start giving more and more power. And so the rails have to be there. And, and the good news is that it's very clear of who has what power because of the way smart contracts work and because of the nature of open source code. And so, you know, you can look at any of these, these products and you look at scale, for example, where anybody can show up and run a server and add it to the network. And, you know, let's say we want to change the pricing. And so all these developers that are building, you know, you know, blockchain games and blockchain business applications, blockchain uh, finance applications, et cetera, can all use scale as their database. Let's say the, the people that run the servers are like, we need to get paid more. It's like in the example of the Uber driver, like, hey, we need more money. And the rider's like, we want to pay less. Well, guess what? They can actually vote. And anybody who has tokens can vote to change the price. And then we're like, okay, I guess the price changes. And it literally happens automatically through smart contracts. There's a proposal of the contract that codifies the business logic and then people vote. And if it passes, it literally just happens. It gets upgraded. And so that is like a really amazing level of decentralization that's really clear. Now, you if you started there the first day, you have to organize. Right now, there's 4,000 people staking in the scale network. There are 150 validator uh, nodes. There's 46 validator orgs. And so... It, in six months, the first on-chain votes are going to start. But in the next couple of weeks, like there's, and you know, months, it's like you need a hot fix, like boom, boom, like you need to have more agility during the early days. And the scale network just launched October 1st, right? And it's live decentralized form. But so you just take these graduated steps to get there, you know, fix all the bad issues, move to the next phase, the next phase. Um, but it is, uh, we're in experiment zone. Best practices are being formed now. And um, and I think we're all learning, which is also exciting. 
Wow, so well said. Yeah. And you know, I like that idea of like, you know, you start with degrees of decentralization and move along with the benefits. And you know, building something like scale that has such huge implications. I mean, blockchain obviously itself has huge implications on society. How do you how do you see yourself moving or bringing old industries along like the banking system without because it can be seen they're obviously freaking out and it can be seen as a threat but if you look long term right um there's a way for everyone to win with um with this new technology could you uh, speak a bit more to that yeah yeah i okay so i i forget which who came up with coined this term the white hot center um it's in one of the you know, famous business books. That means like, it's really your low hanging fruit, right? And it's your like, Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm first bowling pin. Okay, like, that's your white hot center. You know, some people say sell Bibles to the Christians, you'll your sales will be better, right? Than trying to like, you know, change people's religion. Okay. And, you know, and so when you look at blockchain, it's it's gaming and decentralized finance right now. Those are the two big categories. And, but you know what, there's a lot of other ones right behind those. And so I think, I think, um, there are people that are out trying to like change people's religion, sell different manuscripts of religion to people who don't practice that religion. And to be honest, they're just not having much success. <laughs> now, maybe their tokens are really valuable, but if you look at the activity on their blockchains, it's pretty empty. Okay. <laughs> and that's another cool thing about blockchain. You can actually see business traction because you can see how much information is in the blocks of usage. <laughs> So these are called ghost chains. There's a lot of billion dollar ghost chains out there. Um, but then you look at the Ethereum network and it's just, there's so much use and it's just the early days still. And, and the network's still getting jammed. That's why scale is, you know, building and other, you know, Ethereum's moving to ETH2. And there's all these really good things that are happening. But, um, but I think, you know, we have to find the white hot center. And then the other pieces just get pulled along in the vacuum. Oh, thank you. Awesome. No, just really appreciate it. Yeah. And, and looking at time here and, uh, you know, I think maybe if the, as a quick last question, as you look out to the next, you know, five or 10 years, um, you know, where do you see scale and, and the impact that, um, it will be able to have? And then, uh, yeah, I would love to just hear that quick, quick answer as we wrap up. You know, the goal of the scale community is to make the user own node economy in, it would be amazing to see 10,000 nodes in the scale network or 100,000 owned by thousands of different operators and running, you know, the, the majority of the world's smart contracts and, um, and really helping a positive movement for users and, and governance come together, um, in a, from a societal perspective as well as a financial perspective for all the new small businesses that will get up and running, people that are running servers that have, you know, other products and assets and services they sell in and around this network. And I would love to just see this flourishing ecosystem that, you know, and, and at the end of the day, it's all about making developers successful. And if that happens, then I think a lot of good stuff will happen for a lot of people. And, you know, that's, that's our goal. Oh, thank you. And probably one qu thank last you. question to give scale an opportunity and a plug for, for anyone, for, uh, for anyone out there who's looking to get into blockchain or is aligned with this scale vision, what would you like to share with them? And what sort of people do you look for, uh, yeah, for the scale labs team? 
Yeah. So I, I recommend go, go to scale.network. That's the website, S-K-A-L-E.network. You could follow me on Twitter at Jack O'Halloran. Uh, and, or, you, you know, find me by going, you know, through the, the scale website or, or Telegram or Discord if you use those products. But, um, yeah, just come to the website, check it out. It's an open source community. It's community owned. Um, scale Labs Inc. is just one of the, you know, we're the, the founding team, but, you know, there's open source contribution happening. If you're a developer, please check out the documentation. Um, in, and yeah, come, come get engaged. And, and I think also welcome you to come check out the Ethereum ecosystem because scale is just one, you know, one component of that broader ecosystem and community. And I think a lot of, uh, it's a lot of fun and uh, a lot of passionate people trying to build the future of the internet.